welcome into Natchez Glenhouse Stories. This is like, we're almost at 25. Technically, this is 24. But this is, if I'm going to be honest, the most selfish of all of the Natchez Glenhouse Stories so far. Because as someone growing cut flowers, I often have learned, and I'm going to share this with my guest as well as we all talk about this subject, the world of flower handling has some flaws. So one of my hopes today with my guest, John Dole, is that we're going to make this a little better, you and I today. Dr. Dole, that's what we're going for. Um, All right, sounds good. Let me hit you with this one right off just the gate because I do dahlias in such large scale. One of the things that I have continually heard about dahlias is they are short-lived cut flowers. Now, what's interesting about that, as someone that grows them, I cut a lot of them, John, and a lot do pretty well. If there's something that you've seen in, in your trialing and your experience with Dahlia specifically for cut flower, what big mistakes, the, the obvious ones, do you think people are maybe making? Well, let's talk about the, the short-lived part of it. Um, dahlias are an ex- very genetically diverse group of plants. Um, so there's a lot of variation across there. And I think one of the first things is the post-harvest on dahlias is to not do good cultivar selection. Um, we tend to be attracted to color. And, of course, dahlias with all those just absolutely fantastic colors, shapes and sizes, you know, from the little pom-poms to the big dinner plates. You know, it's so easy to focus on the color, the shape, just because they're just lush. Um, but getting past that and selecting for post-harvest, you know, I think new growers, when they get into dahlias, they get overwhelmed with all the, with all the colors and the shapes. Um, but I think more established growers very quickly start to hone in on those that can take the handling. Do you think that's one of the, the key things before we even get any deeper that is happening, right? The flower world, especially flower farming right now, is so influenced by Instagram specifically that most of the talk is just about the pretty flower, but the pretty flower doesn't always equal a good vase life or a good cut flower? Well, I I think it's gotten more focus. I think that's been a focus uh, with the age of you know social media and Instagram, but it really has always been there. Um, that, that issue has always been there. And it's very, very practical. Color is immediate. Openness is immediate. Post-harvest, you have no way of knowing how long a flower is going to last until you've had it for four days, five days, one week, two weeks, three weeks. Um, so in the industry's defense, that's just a much harder thing to, to sort for and to look for. Um, on the other hand, we know that uh, growers, there are certain things growers need to be doing to make sure the flowers go off to the customers with the maximum amount of base life still available for the customer to use. Um, so, yeah, I think it has gotten worse, so to speak, but we've always had this issue of, of buying flowers based on how they look uh, rather than how they're going to Now, and you also mentioned that, you know, I think in one of the latest things I saw, there's over 8,000 Dahlia cultivar 
have you been able to pinpoint is there any genetic lineage that we're seeing at all that sort of as someone who's looking at dahlia the the large dinner plate versus the smaller decoratives is there any kind of connection that sort of points to okay if the plant has this kind of characteristic that may in fact mean that it might lean towards having better vase life no not yet so you know a lot of times i say it depends being an academic but this one's pretty clear no uh, the work's not been done i would say the dinner plates tend not to hold up well um, just because when they're so big and two, um, they really have not been selected for post-harvest. Um, other than that, no. Uh, we are starting to see, you know, when the Karmas came out, golly, that was a while back now, that was, that was a big step forward in that we had, uh, breeders and, and selectors focusing on which ones are good for cut flowers. Um, there's so much more that can be done. A lot of growers have done tried a variety, number of varieties and selected them. That's not all been drawn together in one place. And part of that is because vase life will vary a bit from farm to farm. That'd be a great study to do to bring all the genetics together and see if we can um, put some correlations together. You know, try to say, uh, you know, maybe the pon-pons are better at vase life. You know, but no, I'm Great question. We just don't have that information yet. There's a lot of folks who have some ideas based on the flowers that they've grown on their farm, but unless you're a dahlia grower, unless you're a dahlia cut flower grower that has grown dozens and dozens of varieties, um, it's just not enough data there yet to so, make a good statement. So we don't know. We just have a you know we're growing a, a random variety. Let, let, let's pick the actually this was. Ironically, John, one of the uh, dahlia varieties that you did uh, a test on is actually the one I just finished planting 200 of, which was uh, Natalie G. So, look, okay. so let's say we're it could be Natalie G. It could be any variety. Linda's baby. I'm in a pink world because that's what I've been planting. But what's best practice, right? Like, like walk me through from the work that you've done. I want to cut a dahlia where do I go? When do I do it in the day? What do I do after I cut it? Just give me the mechanics of like, what is best practice here that no matter what the variety is, at least I'm going to get the best result for vase life. Uh, cut into water. Um, use a flower food. I get asked a lot of times which flower food and we, uh, a holding solution. Uh, which is that category. You know, we've got the hydrator, the holding, and then the consumer. Those are the three broad categories. There's lots of specialty flower foods. Um, get to those in a minute. But uh, holding seems to be working pretty well. Holding has some sugar. Uh, dahlias do respond to sugar in the in the base solution, um, the bucket solution. And then when you send it out with the customers, uh, the packet should go with um, they do respond to the consumer flower food as well. Um, in terms of, we've not done the work on time of day. We do know that some flowers, more than we thought originally, are better harvested in the afternoon. Um, we've done a whole lot of work on dahlias, but there's a whole lot more to be done, and we just haven't done the time of day. Well, that would be a good one to 
to test. That would be the idea. Um, then get them in the cooler. One thing that growers should also look at, we did with just two cultivars. That's the difficulty of doing research on a species where there's hundreds of cultivars is you just can't do. I mean, we do, like a typical set of experiments might be 50 different treatments. And we can only do that on a couple cultivars, uh, just because otherwise it becomes so big, so unmanageable. But when we did our original dahlia work, we looked at two different cultivars. And Naomi, which is an, an older karma, that one we could harvest fairly tight and get it to fully open and then perform well. And what's useful about that is that means if you're a farmer's market grower, you can cut it earlier in the week, and it'll still open up nicely for the customer. So that helps you spread it out a little bit. If you're a grower that ships, you can cut it, and then you can ship it without it being damaged, and it'll still open up nicely. Uh, now, the other cultivar that we tried, and I'm blanking on the name, did not open up after harvest. So that's one thing we've we've been taught, is that dahlias need to be cut pretty close to fully open, and then... That needs to be looked at, and I would encourage growers to do a little bit on their own. Do I really need, do I really need to cut it fully open? Because you may be able to get um, some more useful vase life out of that flower. Do you think there's been a little bit of a misconception on how complex the genetics, specifically to Dahlia, are for people? You know, so much of what happens with plants is always generically spoken about. That, you know, dahlias are this, roses are that. And the fact that just in parent species, we're, we're talking into the, you know, nearly 50 in the case of dahlia and roses hundreds, that sometimes we've lost sight of that, that this is not maybe as a, a blanket black and white thing as maybe sometimes we're talking about it as. Definitely. There are cultivar variations on many of these species which makes the research more difficult and it makes it harder to handle. Um, I, I can go both ways with that. I think there are some general recommendations for most cut flowers. And then um, what we try to do is to come up with what are the general recommendations that you can use for most of your flowers. And then as needed, you do the specialty, you do the special treatments for the handful of flowers that might need it. And I would say the same thing for dahlias. Um, cutting into water. Um, one of the things they can, growers can look at is when to cut. That might be one of the specialty things. You know, like peonies, boy, that's really dependent on cultivar by cultivar of what the bud needs to be at to get the best vase life. And, and maybe with dahlias, we, that may be the same case and we'll figure this out over time. Go ahead. Now, when we, we look at like peonies, let's take a quick transition over here to peony land. And from someone who's also in the, the Southeast, John, what I see in peonies and field grown production, at least, is that depending upon our weather, it feels like they're blowing through their stages in like the midday, right? You walk out in the morning, you're like, oh, that looks pretty tight. You walk by that by one o'clock and you go, oh, wait a second. Was there any room for error here? How much does climatic influence like that have to do with when you cut 
as far as like the climate that you're experiencing that year, if you're in a real warm cycle when the peonies start to push and the bud starts to open, does that influence how that plant is doing as far as post-harvest goes also? Well, there's two, there's two parts to that question. The first is with peonies, yes. Uh, peony growers in the south have less room for error. And it has to do with average daily temperature. Um, in particular, when our nights start to climb up. Uh, like the other night here, I think it was about 60 degrees at night. And that's warm. Um, so when you take, let's say you take a 75, 80-degree day and you have a 45-degree night, that's still a fairly cool average daily temperature. And average daily temperature is the average of all the hours all the 24 hours of a day together. But when you take a 75-degree day and you add a 60-degree night, that's a much warmer average daily temperature. And peonies are very temperature-sensitive, so they are going to start opening much faster when you have that average daily temperature getting up there. Um, in the south, we tend to have warm nights. They creep up very quickly for us. Where in the north... The nights tend to stay cold. So with peonies, um, they have more room for error. So they might check the crop in the morning and it looks okay. And then the next day they can go ahead and harvest. Here in the south, we might have to harvest those two and sometimes three times a day um, just because the average daily temperature is warm and they're going to blow open more quickly. Now, when I had Dr. Armitage on the podcast a couple of months ago, John, I think he scared a few people from growing peonies <laughs> in the South of the United States. Let me ask you your opinion, right? Like I've always told people on social media that, you know, hey, I grow peonies here. It's sort of mostly for fun um, as a, a profitable crop, right? If we're talking sort of in an economic state, peonies in the South, it, it, is it doable? I mean, we see these peonies coming up out of Alaska they have these huge buds on them. The climate there seems to just give them this extra ability to go to dormancy. Is it a thing that people should consider as a crop for the southern United States? Yes. With the realization that the peony grown in North Carolina, Georgia, northern Alabama, uh, so forth, is going to be different than the peony that's being grown in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Alaska. Um, and it's very, very straightforward. Uh, this crop needs a certain amount of cold during the winter to do well. And in the south, if we have a warm winter, it means they're not going to get the number of chilling hours. They're not going to get the cold of the winter. Uh, and the stems are not going to be as long, and the heads are not going to be as big. If you have a market that can handle uh, a smaller stemmed peony with a smaller head, then peonies are totally going to work for you. And you will have to keep in mind that you're going to need to cut them a lot. Um, but if you have a wholesale market or if you have very high-end clientele that really demand the big flowers, long stems, then peonies in the south are probably not going to work for you. So it has to go with the expectations of your customer on the quality of the stems you're going to harvest. Um, like here in North Carolina, we're on the southern edge of the range for peonies. And we can tell um, if it's a warm winter, the stems will not be as long and the heads will be smaller. 
which so is which is gotta get used to that. Which and and so when you're working with um people who are new to to horticulture, more or less growing cut flowers. How do you, because this is something I'm struggling with, John, and, and talking to people occasionally and having people like yourself on the podcast, I think it's a, a valuable moment to to pick your brain on this subject. How do we get people to sort of up their horticultural knowledge game on something like peonies, right? Because we have a lot of people that are coming into the category and that's great. That's exciting. But there is a lot of misinformation out there too, right? We have in the gardening world, a lot of, you know, Grandma Sue and, and Uncle Bob kind of folklore sometimes that almost exists. I had a recent person on uh, Instagram ask me, well, if I plant, uh, my grandmother told me that if I plant a pink peony next to a white peony, that the white peony will eventually turn pink. <laughs> Things like that, John, that I get a lot of. Um, when, when you're working with like new people into the category and, and you, you tackle a subject like peonies, do you, do you how have you found going about it? Is it sometimes a struggle for people to understand like the dormancy period that peonies would prefer versus in the warmer climates like you mentioned? How have you sort of navigated some of that issue? Yeah, there is a lot of that out there. And again, I think um, social media and the web has made it worse. But I have to say I've been doing uh, this for over 30 years and there was a lot of misinformation in the 80s as well. Um, it was just in some ways harder to correct um, because you had to meet with folks face-to-face or you had to send out a bulletin with an article in it. Um, now you can put up a blog post. Um, so I say the problem is worse, and I think the, cor- the corrections are easier, um, but it doesn't mean that there's not a lot of it. I, you know, I'm an academic. I'm afraid I have to go with education. Yeah. Um, just... And what we have to do is just all types of education. You know, I think encouraging folks to go to the conferences and the meetings where they can hear the official information um, or where they can talk in the hallway with a grower who's been doing it for 20 years uh, so that they really understand this makes sense rather than reading a posting by somebody in their backyard garden that's making very broad statements about peonies or roses and taking that and thinking that that's valid. Um, yeah, the the problem's worse, worse, but I think nowadays we've got more ways to to address it as well. Um, now, coming up next week, I have Dr. Wyndham from UT Knoxville on, so I'm not going to go at you about all of the issues that I have with roses for uh, for Mark for next week, but let's talk about roses in, in cut flower. Now, here's one of the things that I have... Struggled with uh, when it comes to the floral design community. And to be quite blunt on this subject, if we think the world of flower farmer doesn't know a lot about flowers, well, the floral design community and florist community sometimes is far even worse. So we have a bit of an uphill climb there sometimes. So the expectation coming out of the floral design community for long stem, greenhouse grown South American roses seems to be that those should have about a 10 to 14 day vase life. If we're talking about roses on the whole, and again, this is another, I'm asking you to sort of make a generic comment here. Is that a realistic expectation that from the time a rose is cut to the time that they receive it, it should last another 10 to 14 days? Yes. A properly handled rose should. Um, 
it's unfortunate that we see a number of situations where roses have been stored for too long or handled improperly, and they don't do that. Um, when I give talks to the general public, I say, if your roses don't last at least seven days, complain to the vendor. Um, I would put the, the minimum at seven days. Um, we do have some cultivars where seven to ten days is where they naturally fall. But a lot of commercial um, long-stem greenhouse-grown roses, the natural vase life is uh, is around ten uh, is around ten to fourteen days. We have in some of the testing we've done, we have some that have been pushing eighteen days routinely. Um, it gets to how the roses were handled, and it's not always the fact that. If I rephrase this, quite often it is not the transportation. That was the issue. It's how they were handled after the fact, um, not being unpacked from boxes quickly enough, leaving them in the cooler too long, uh, letting them warm up on the car ride home. Um, it's all those sorts of things that really can knock down the base life of a flower, particular roses. So, so yes, roses. Roses actually have a commercial. Now, the kind of we grow a lot of shrub roses in the United States. We grow a lot of specialty roses. Those are in a different category. Many of those have naturally fairly short base lives, although we love them because of the fragrance, because of the lushness, and that's perfectly okay. Um, but when you buy a long stem rose, you're planning to enjoy that for at least a week, and, and they should. They should last at least a week. So walk me through like the garden rose world, right? Like that is like I grow over 350 plants here of just David Austin garden roses. Mm -hmm. Walk me through from your perspective. Why is it different? What's the genetic linkage there that, you know, the long stem rose, clearly the greenhouse production plant has been bred for vase life, for durability, for transportation. Could you walk us through maybe those differences? You know, why do we see that difference between that greenhouse rose and that garden rose? One of the first places to start is the petal count. Um, some of the roses, some of the garden roses, um, have much fewer petals. And so, very practical. If X number of petals open up every hour, uh, and you've got, uh, let's say, 100 petals in one cultivar and 50 in another, that means the one with 50 is going to open up in half the time as the one with 100. So, very straightforward. Uh, we have the same same issue with peonies, um, number of petals, in terms of how fast they opened up. The other thing with cut flower, uh, with the major cut flower rose varieties, um, the breeders, I wish they would focus more on post-harvest life. They do to a certain extent. Um, but one thing they do focus on, which is, again, very practical, is the speed at which the flowers open up. And so some of the major varieties, the commercial cut flower varieties, uh, they're bred to open up very slowly. People love that T-shape of the hybrid T-rose, and they like it to stay looking like that uh, for a long period of time. Um, so they have been breeding and selecting for roses that open up much more slowly. And that, of course, means the vase life uh, is longer. Garden roses, we've been breeding them for the garden performance, 
not we, but you know, the breeders have been breeding them for garden performance. Um, and vase life and all those other things, those are characteristics that much more recently are starting to be paid attention to. So I think it's going to take some time before we see rose cultivars coming out that have the variety and the lushness and the colors and the fragrance of what we love in garden roses on a plant that can produce a nice, long-lasting cut flower that opens up slowly. Could you talk to us a little bit, and this is something I don't know if people are aware of, how the flower actually carrying fragrance quickens the petal opening? Actually, that's uh, from what I understand, that's not related. Um, fragrance is separate. There's been some work in Florida that's tried to link fragrance with certain colors. For example, I grew up thinking, you know, these, these dusky purples, um, the handful that I noticed seemed to have really strong fragrance. So in my mind, it's like, okay, that cultivar has a lot of fragrance. Unfortunately, they were not able to find that link. Interesting. So um, there's a lot of myths out there about fragrance, and I think it's just not... Uh, not as clear cut. Um, fragrance is not apparently linked with color. Um, fragrance is more with, you know, but we have some garden roses that have almost no fragrance. So I, I really shouldn't say garden roses. Garden roses, let's put it this way. The garden roses we really like tend to be the ones with fragrance. And those are the ones we tend to use for cuts. Now, is has fragrance been bred out of roses to aid in them? lasting longer as cut flowers because one of the things that i have always heard is that the molecule that actually carries fragrance also makes the rose drop its petals faster true or false probably false that has been looked at as well and no apparent link there um it's really hard to say a negative you know it's much easier to say yellow is yellow than um no, the breeders are not breeding fragrance out to make them last longer. But you as a cut flower grower know how much goes into making a plant a profitable cut flower for you. Uh, think about all those factors. And with the rose, it's even more intense. Um, you got to have the right color. Um, it's got to have a lot of petals so it looks full and opens up. Uh, slowly. Uh, it's got to have not too many thorns. It's got to have nice looking foliage. You know, if you look at some roses, some of the garden roses, you know, they've got pretty lousy foliage. There's not very many leaves and it's kind of light green. You know, so you got to breathe for foliage. you got to breathe for not too many thorns. you got to breathe for long stems. you got to breed for a lot of stems because it's an, you know, it's a very competitive business. So you've got to get a lot of flowers per square foot which any of your listeners who have a small farm with only an acre or so, they know they're going to plant the flowers that are going to give them the most stems per square foot of bed. So you've got all these factors to pay attention to, and fragrance is one of those. And sometimes it means that a cultivar is going to be selected, which is going to be very productive, have a long life, and may not have good fragrance. Um then the other side of it, we're increasingly hearing from consumers who have some sensitivity to fragrance. Like on the beautiful, I love oriental lilies. I love paper white narcissus. I know some of your, your listeners are saying, what? Um, 
But there's a lot of folks that react to those strong fragrances. And so, like with lilies, they're trying to gently tone down the fragrance on some of the flowers. So we've got all these competing interests that result in a flower that sometimes doesn't have much fragrance in it. I like fragrance. I'm one of those who still leans into the roses and smells them and likes to smell fragrance in there. Um, so it's not a matter of fragrance being bred out. It's more a matter of occasionally fragrance is sort of forgotten with all the other traits that the breeder is trying to put into a cultivar. Do you find maybe that's going to be one of the challenges moving forward here as we've had a lot of small boutique flower farms pop up and then we still have obviously in Latin America primarily but we have larger scale growers as well that there's this at many times a, a very different market that each is serving you know one is serving more of a mass market appeal where the other is boutique more specialty mm-hmm. and trying to make sure that the information is getting to those right people because really what they should be doing is is really different from each other. Mm-hmm. The one's goal and the market, like you're saying with lilies, is maybe addressing issues like that, that on a mass market scale, maybe as someone's standing by a grocery store checkout, having that lily fragrance there is too much for that person. But for the small boutique grower, maybe that opens up opportunity as well. I agree completely. I think every time a flower um, goes, so to speak, from being a a specialty item to being a mass-produced, um, I think some of the growers lose market um, because they're being um, out-competed by a bigger grower that can grow it more cheaply. But almost inevitably, that product narrows in terms of which cultivars, which colors um, will work in a large mass market or a large mass producer. And that opens up niches. So it's a matter of waiting for um, seeing what those uh, niches are. Rose is a classic example. Um, It has gone mainstream. Uh, It is primarily being produced by large growers. And then I look around the country and see all these beautiful garden roses that have now come on the market to fill that niche that was left, uh, to fill those customers that were left behind when the big growers had to focus on those cultivars that make money. Um, yeah, I, we see this over and over again. Sunflowers is headed down that path as well. Um, and we're seeing, you know, the, the colors, the bicolors, different things like that. Um, I can, you know, there's a lot of flowers where uh, we can see that. Let's um, and the, the yeah, and the market has differentiated. Um, we now got one set of growers that are focusing mainly on the very large customers, and we got a lot of growers that are focusing on you know direct retail, um, specialty supermarkets, uh, some of the some of the florists, and they're evolving in very different ways. It's almost two different markets now in a lot of ways. Let's circle back to Dahlia. So Cafe Olay becomes extremely popular on the market. Thanks, Martha Stewart. And then it becomes almost like a a Kleenex in a way, John, for a lot of designers, at least when it came to dahlias. You know, I'd be very hard pressed to tell you that I have found a lot of floral designers that know any cultivar name except for Cafe Olay. 
is there a movement in, in like larger scale? Obviously, they see something like that in the work that you do and the places that you work with. Do we see them trying to gain traction in that market? Dahlia historically have not been grown at that large of a scale in greenhouse production. But is that something that's coming or is that clearly that doesn't go unnoticed by large growers when something like Cafe Olay becomes that popular that maybe they need to head down that road? Not very much yet. Um, I don't see that being grown on either Cafe Olay or Dahlia. Uh, some of the large growers have tried. Um, it's just a difficult crop to do in the large scale. What's the technical um, limitation to that? Why is it that greenhouse growers and dahlias have historically not been successful? Um, post-harvest life and chipability. The post-harvest life of dahlia is just a little too short to fit into bouquets that can be put into a store um, for several days and still perform at least seven days in the customer's home. Uh, dahlias don't go into that system very well. And uh, second is the variability in the mark in the production of them. Um, Cafe Olay is not the most productive plant out there. There's many other cultivars that are dairy cultivars that are more productive per square foot. Um, so it happens to be that the real popular color at the moment is not one that lends itself well to mass production. You've mentioned which I think is totally fine because I think it keeps it then open as a viable option for hundreds of other growers. You mentioned square foot now a couple of times mm -hmm. and I've done some Instagram lives where I'm strongly encouraging new or aspirationally becoming flower farmer people that grow flowers, occasionally sell flowers, people, John, to start looking at their production that way. You know, historically we've had yield per acre and larger scale ag. And now I, I encourage them to break it down into a grid, start evaluating these things because there is an economics to all of this. And I'm guessing from you mentioning this a couple of times, that's something that you're probably trying to help people start looking at it maybe a little bit more intensely in that way. Yes. And I think I'm glad you're doing that because I think it's an important factor to look at. Um, this is a wonderful business. Don't get me wrong. And this is great that we get to focus on the flowers and I love, I mean, that's why I got into it. But ultimately, um, a business has to make money. And production per square foot is a good place to start um, because you think about how much goes into that square foot of space. You know, if you've got 200 square feet in a bed, think about the amount of time it's going to take to prepare that soil, um, how much fertilizer goes into that, how much weeding you might have to do, whether or not you use any sort of mulching. Um, the more square footage you have, much more the cost. And many years ago, we used to do, we used to do a workshop just on calculating the cost of a bunch and a bunch of flowers. And one of the things we, one of the methods we used was square footage of area. It's just a real easy way to take a look of so many costs for the business relate to how much Square footage in production you have. Um, you can also look at the cost of a bunch of flowers based on labor, although that gets a little bit harder to track. Um, so yeah, I really encourage folks to be thinking about it, even if they think they have a lot of land. The amount of acreage they can take care of 
either themselves or with a small number of workers, is going to be limited. So it may, even some folks who may think, well, I'm not limited by the amount of land. I can just put a few more beds in. They really need to be thinking about the production per square foot um, because of all the costs associated with that. Is there a, one of the, the main reasons I decided to do dahlias here is because in the past I had always grown, you know, a thousand or so just for fun when I wasn't doing anything commercially with the property here. And I'd always just had really good success with them. And so I had a lot of experience and I tried to select varieties that are, you know, heavy flower yield, not so much mm-hmm. just, you know, pretty picture. Is right, there exactly. is there something besides dahlias that you see people that, that give a heavy yield throughout the growing season that people aren't growing that they should grow more of? Ooh, golly, um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I, in a sense, we've got so many growers doing so many species. I really. I don't think too many are being ignored um, or, you know, could be, be increased. Um, well, I recently, I think most, I recently had this conversation. So I had someone come out and I have uh, several tree peonies on the property. And it was a floral designer and, you know, she was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible, this plant. And then I sort of explained to her how tree peonies work, John. And then I was like, well... Here's the bad news. If I ever grew these for any kind of commercial endeavor, I'd have to charge you about $15 a stem. Okay. So it, it, there's that gap too, right? There's the, uh, the zinnia flowers like that that can be high yield, but sometimes the market isn't there to support those. And then on the other side of it, you have something maybe like a tree peony, which is like super interesting, but the yield is nothing and the plant takes forever to grow. So are, are this, there's something that fills that gap, I guess, you know, it's always the, you know, it's the art versus commerce kind of argument that exists within the cut flower world, I think sometimes. Yeah. And by the way, my tree peonies flowered uh, last week and oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, well, and when you get <laughs> Talk in, about lush and Right. Right. And you get yeah, into that yeah, and then I, and then I look at the intersectional peonies and I think to myself, right. Cause I, as I always tell people, John, I have a lot of woodland fairies that work here, but a couple of them are accountants. So I have them to balance out the whole thing. So I love the intersectional peonies. There's so much good work that's being done there in uh, hybridizing. But here's where the butt comes from, people. They're very expensive for the plants, even wholesale. The time in the ground just to get them established is several years. And then even when they are sort of happy, it's not the heaviest of flower. And that is dedicated space now to that intersectional peony. There is no ripping up out of the ground as soon as it's done blooming and replacing it with something else. This isn't, you know, determinant tomatoes that we're growing. So is there, is zinnia something that, you know, maybe is almost overdone now? I mean, is there like that, that comparable balancing plant that maybe has like the push that a dahlia has that you can think of? Well, uh, Zinnia is, is a good example. That's one. Uh, we did some survey work, and it is the most commonly grown cut flower in the United States. It might not be the most grown. I'm pretty sure it's not, but it is the most common. Um, just because it's easy, um, it fills in bouquets, it can be sold by colors, and it can be sold single, sta- you know, single species bunch. 
So it's just it's versatile in that regard. Um, in terms of your other questions, you know, I think of some of the up and coming ones that I've been watching uh, would be the Baptisias. Uh, Did you so talk to Doctor Armitage before this, John? No. No. <laughs> I I live not too far from Plant Delights Nursery, which ah. is especially perennial, and they have been trialing and doing some breeding with uh, Baptisias. Oh my gosh, the colors are just just spectacular. There's a we have not done full post harvest on them. Uh, we've only done the basic studies. Um, so I would put my caveat there. I, we we don't know yet how to handle them properly. Um, Do you probably think there's a our ethylene sensitivity to them? Um, the colors coming along, and what's nice about what you want, what basically what you're asking about, is is there a species that has the presence, you know, the, the size, the shape, and the distinctiveness of a peony, but yet has the productivity of a zinnia. Um, yeah, everybody wants those. Yeah, and do, um, do you think, like with Baptisia, is there a space there? Because this is a plant that has a bit of a sweet pea kind of look to it, that it it could be more durable and more productive in like warmer climates than maybe say something like a sweet pea could. Definitely, um, the problem with peony is, or excuse me, the Baptisia is, of course, that it is a spring flowering, spring and early summer. Um, which has a limited season, although we're seeing some variation in the flowering, and so you can probably start putting together several cultivars to get a longer uh, flowering season. It, uh, well-grown Baptisia, has, it's a striking flower, and the breeders have been working heavily on mixing and matching the species, and so we've got all this broad range of colors from brown, just chocolate, gorgeous brown, to white, to the blues, the purples, the pinks, the yellows, the oranges. Um, and now they're kind of going back and starting to uh, increase the flower count on the stems, um, making these things getting closer and closer to, you know, a beautiful delphinium. Um, yeah, that's, that's a group that probably, it has the, the presence of a flower that can command a high price and the productivity appears to be going up on it. So you mentioned delphinium. Uh, this is something that I'm seeing happen, and I, and I want you to maybe clarify, because I've had my own opinion on this, but I wanted you to weigh in. So I see a lot of people trying to grow delphinium uh, from seed, specifically. And I'm curious of your opinion if you think uh, delphinium, through its entire cycle as a cut flower crop, is productive in warmer climates. Well, we've uh, we've done a number of delphiniums down here. We've done them mainly as a field crop. I think we did them once in the, the greenhouse. I think they are better suited to greenhouse or high tunnel overall. But I do think they work outdoors. Um, I think for the south, the hybrid, the seed propagated hybrid ones. Um, are generally more reliable. Uh, they grow faster. Uh, you don't get this big honking stem that you do with like the Pacific Giants. Um, the Pacific Giants, you sometimes get nothing. 
uh, with them because they don't handle the heat. Uh, they don't handle the wetness over the winter that we sometimes get. Um, so I think the hybrid, as much as those hybrids are very expensive, um, I think there's a market and I think there's a production niche for them. The issue we run into here in the, in, at NC State, and I'll just say NC State because I think some other growers in North Carolina have been able to get them to work, is we need a longer season on them. So if we plant them in the fall, uh, we can get that. We can get a nice full plant and then some nice long stems. Um, but yet sometimes we have cold winters and we lose them. If you want to be more careful about them and plant them in the spring, then we just don't have as long a season on them and we don't get, we get a reliable stand, um, but the stems are not as, as big. Um, so there's kind of a trade-off there. Mm. I think it's a matter of growers trying it for their, can they plant it early enough in the fall or early enough in late winter to get a nice good plant on it and get a nice stem on it? I would say even when we didn't get it, you know, we still got a three-foot stem. Um, so it's not like it's a total bust. But when I see a nice four- and five-foot delphinium, yeah, I really like that. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, so speaking of, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring us down uh, Georgia way, right? Because the two of, one of the people who is responsible for a lot of this is Georgia. Uh, hydrangea. So mm, yeah, all good, of the good group. all of the work that's happened with uh, paniculata over the last 10, 20 years in the cut flower world, um, I think maybe it's finding a balance again between for like small scale grower who's trying to do more of a boutique operation versus some of the hydrangeas that have gone large mass scale greenhouse. Is there anything that strikes you in hydrangea that works more for maybe that smaller boutique scale versus the mass market? Yeah, um, I'm going to have to plug the, the Tom Rainey, the breeder, who's been breeding hydrangea arborescence with color. Uh, hydrangea arborescence, most of us think of it the Annabelle. Um, big white flowering heads. You know, basically you treat them almost like a perennial in the sense of you cut them back to the ground in the fall, and they produce these nice, long, straight stems, big honking flower heads, honking being a scientific term. Um, I'm sure you know that. Um, but um, what he has done with a number of them is he's brought in various colors. So now we've got a hydrangea with with the pinks and the blues of the, the macrophylla type. Um, but yet on a, on a reliable plant that uh, we're not going to lose the, the flowers over the winter on. Um, so I think that's the one of the first ones. Um, some of the first ones that came out were a little weaker. I think some of the subsequent cultivars um, have been uh, have been really quite good. So walk me through post harvest on hydrangea. Like this is one too that I think there's a little bit of like wives' tales about what we add to the water, what we do. And then at the very end here, we're going to go through a, a rapid fire, John, on fact or fiction. But walk me through like hydrangea harvest. Well, first is harvest stage. Um, like limelight is, is green. It's a paniculata type. Um, it's named for the fact that it's supposed to be green. But of course, as it ages, it, it ages white. So if you want that green color, you're going to harvest it at an earlier stage and it's not all completely developed. And that's where we see a lot of the issues with hydration. 
Um, so cutting it early in the morning, getting a nice, clean, sharp cut. Don't mash the stem, getting it into water. Um, uh, hydration solutions, I think, for the most part, have not been particularly useful for just a good, clean cut, although I have to say some growers swear by putting a hydrator in the water, so I'll leave that up to the growers to figure out. Uh, and then putting them in the cooler, getting good water uptake and then putting them in the cooler and slowing them down. Uh, when they get more mature, they get a little easier. Uh, they tend not to have the issues with hydration that we see uh, when the flowers are younger. Um, so that would be, that'd be my suggestion on that. It, uh, the stem is woody and so you just make sure to have a good clean cut. Uh, and don't mash them, otherwise that's going to make it harder for them to take up water. Speaking of mashing, is there ever a time, because there was a minute here where this was one of those things, where crushing a stem on varying varieties out there in the universe, I actually think I remember for a minute, people were even saying it with uh, Dahlia, is good. Is there a variety of plant you can think of where mashing a stem is actually beneficial? Have not found it. Yes, which, which, is, which is pretty amazing, though, right? Because we had a minute yeah. where hand pruners were even coming out with a literal masher, for lack of, again, scientific term on it. Yeah, it, um, no. Um, we've tested a lot of flowers. I can't say we've tried mashing on a, in too many. I would be greatly surprised if there are any where that was beneficial versus just a good clean cut. All right, let's rapid fire it here, John. I think we're going to go through. You and I now are going to try to reverse history on a lot of these myths. You ready? All right, go here for we it. Go. Dahlias, after you cut them, you drop them in 160 to 180 degree water. I'm also going to get the theory here, John, that this then calluses the bottom of the stem and prevents any water exchange or bacteria uptake. True, false, maybe so. False. What are we going to do here, people? We got a lot of things. We're going to have to pull back. We're going to have to pull back a lot of thoughts on a lot of different subjects. Okay. Good clean cut with Dahlia. Handle them like other cut flowers. Um, in some cases, the boiling, that one is a little bit easier to, 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 to pass on because in some cases, uh, the testing is showing the boiling water isn't hurting. Um, so with the mashing, we tend to see that it hurts. Um, but with boiling water, sometimes it doesn't hurt. Okay. So at least it's do no harm. Um, whereas other cases, we're, we're actually getting harm. All right. Dangerous instrument question. Secateurs or floral knife? Which creates a cleaner cut? And do we know if it makes any difference? Well, it will make a difference in how tired you are by the end of the day. Um you know, trying to use a floral knife on something that's at all woody, yeah, that's going to run out pretty quick. Um, it depends on what you, it depends on the sharpness. Um, you're going to have to leave that to the individual growers. I think some growers, I grew up using a gladiola knife rather than a pruner because um, I harvested a lot of gladiolas when I was a kid and working for the neighbor farm stand. Uh, the gladiola knife is kind of like a propagation knife. It's got a curve to it. You slide it down a leaf, and then with a quick twist of the wrist, you cut the stem, and then you can pull the stem out of the leaf sheath. Uh, and that 
got us just a wonderful cut. Um, where you know um, pruning shears, you can't do that with. Um, but on the other hand, uh, cutting hydrangeas, yeah, there's no way you could do it with a knife. So I think it's going to be how you want a good clean cut and how tired you are going to be at the end of the afternoon. We're taking a quick detour. What happened to gladiolas, John? I'm going to tell you a quick story about this. So for two years, we had a, a diversion up to Connecticut, the uh, tundra, by the way. And <laughs> while we were there, there are uh, there's a farm there that does dahlias, but historically they had done gladiola. And the owner there, was a huge Gladiola fan, right? Just huge. The, you know, he was one of the original people in the New England, Connecticut Gladiola Society. I mean, he was knee deep into it, John. But they told me that the marketplace on Gladiola really fell out. And one of the reasons was, was because it was sort of considered a funeral flower at one point. How do you feel about Gladiola? From just like, let's not talk about it from a consumer marketplace, but just as like a cut flower. Is it a strong cut flower? Because you mentioned that you grew up dealing with them a lot, and I'm sure your your work has led you back to them a time or two. Where do Gladiola stand as far as just like as a performance flower? Oh, they do very well. Um, they're relatively easy to grow, other than the thrips. Um, they're fairly programmable in the sense of you can plant them. And then you can have a pretty good idea when they're going to flower. Um, they've got these just wonderful array of colors that we find here in the Carolinas. I just planted some this spring. I treat them as perennials down here. Um, yeah, they're a, they're a great, great cut flower. Uh, the colors, you know, those big long spikes, properly handled, you know, with, uh, with treating them right and flower food. You're going to get a fair number of those flowers to open up, and a full peony, or excuse me, a full gladiola stem is just, just spectacular. I do think that they did suffer from being so strongly linked to funerals. Uh, football mums, some of the other mums, they kind of fell in that category too. Um, I'm seeing more of them. They seem to be coming back to the farmer's market. Um, the younger folks uh, don't seem to link them as much with funerals. Um, and so I think uh, you know, maybe that's one that's ready for a good rousing comeback. Well, my, my friend Gary in Connecticut would be super happy, John, if that did happen, because I think he has every variety of Dahlia or of Gladiola rather maybe known in the universe. I mean, he has from brown tans to mauve. I mean, there's nothing he didn't well, the have. The bicolors, there's, you know, they for a while they were trying to come out. They did not trying. They did come out with these smaller flowered ones, pixies. Yeah. Gorgeous, gorgeous things. Um, I was hopeful that they would take off. Uh, but, you know, Americans, we tend to like the, when we do buy gladiolus, we like the big ones. Um, and they're just, just spectacular. Eventually, someone's going to put the money together, John, to do the psychological profiling on consumers with flowers. Like, that's really, at some point, we need to head in that direction with it. Okay, you mentioned it, and I had it on my list here, so I'm going to jump to it. Thrips. Thrips. Now, granted, this isn't this isn't completely flower talk, but you can't talk flowers sometimes without talking thrips. Is there a way to control thrip in field production without chemical intervention? You know, that is, I'm afraid I don't know on that one. Um, we do very little insect control in the field, um, and I just have not looked at that. 
Um, and my home stuff, I do essentially zero. Um, so I do grow glides at home. And the darker ones, I do see drips, which tends to cycle some years worse than others. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to punt. I just can't give you. I don't. I don't know what to tell you on that one. Aspirin. Putting aspirin in water is a good thing. It helps extend Vaz life. Um, it can help you with a headache. It will do nothing for the post-harvest life. Now, in one of your reports where it was Prospero and Natalie G, I saw we used BA, and that did give extended Vaz life. Tell us what BA is and why did that give extended Vaz life versus just water? Uh, BA is benzaladenine. It's short for benzaladenine. In that particular experiment, we also looked at combinations of gibberellic acid. Uh, gibberellic acid is a naturally occurring plant hormone. Uh, it is used in, you can buy some flower foods with it uh, that contain it. It tends to keep foliage green. Uh, it also tends to extend the vase life of certain flowers. Um, it did. It did have an effect. Um, ben Bergman, who's a research associate in my program, he did that work along with Iftikhar Ahmed. Um, it, uh, it did. It was one of the things that was able to extend the vase life of dahlias. Um, it's more specific. It probably wouldn't be you know, a small grower, may not, but if a bigger grower or if a small grower that really relies on dahlias and wants to have them last long, it is something that they may want to try. I have, a, um, I have a friend who has a very successful flower truck business in the Nashville area, John. She keeps her flowers outside throughout the course of the day on the flower trucks, but at the moment she only uses plain water to hold them. Should she change her practice and start using some kind of flower preservative in the water? Unequivocally, yes. Um, I hear this over and over again. My flowers last fine without doing anything, and I always want to say, compared to what? Um, I will say to the folks who don't use flower foods, there are a fair number of flowers where we find that flower foods don't seem to have much of an effect. But the majority do. And we have over and over again tested that. So I'm just absolutely confident. Also, for those species where flower foods don't help, we have the vast majority, it don't hurt. So we have a situation where the recommendation, you know, where you're going to be using something that helps most flowers uh, and doesn't hurt the rest. So what? it's a slam dunk. Why is you it? Should use them. Why is it, John? When sometimes I have flower buckets that go to floral designers and they return them to me, they look like the creature from the Black Lagoon had made a home in the flower bucket, and it is discolored. Is this a bad thing, John? Is that bad? You mean in terms of should they be cleaning their buckets, John? Is is the is the point <laughs> I'm making? Because I have well, to tell you, that's a softball one to I, me. Exactly, you, John thought this yeah. was a harder question than it was. Yeah, I have been shocked at some of the flower handling practices. Uh, the the rule of thumb, and I absolutely stand by this: um, Would you drink water out of your buckets? If not, then they're not clean. You know, um, that's just very straightforward. Um, cleaning the buckets. Um, white buckets are easier to see that if they've gotten any discoloration on them. Um, I know in farmers markets a lot of times these elegant black, you know, if you can really be sure to clean them, those are fine. 
But yeah, um, if you would not drink water out of your buckets, you're not cleaning them enough. I am a consumer. I bought flowers from Steve at Natchez Glen. He hooked me up with this incredible amount of dahlias for $50. How often do I change my water at home? Um, use the flower foods. Mix up the solutions. When that starts to get down to the bottom, so that might be, you know, if it's summer, um, and let's say it's middle of summer and the house is kind of warm, that may go fairly quick. If it's in the fall and it's cool, and the house is cool, that may take a little bit longer time. So I can't really say by day, but give them that first pulse of the, or the first solution with the flower food. Uh, as that goes down and the consumer says, oh, I need to refill that with water, recut the stems, gently sort of wash the stems a little bit, clean the vase, put the stems back in, and you will lengthen the vase life. Do we, do so we recut them at the time you put in fresh, clean water. At that point, you do not need to use the flower food because the amount of water uptake starts to drop um, after several days. And you still need water in there, but they're just not going to take up as much. So good, clean water is all you need after that first vase solution with the flower food. Do we cut the stems underwater when we do it? You know, that was that's a real fun one where a lot of information came out saying that, um, yes, recutting is best. And for the most part, it is. But what we find out now is that there's some nuance there. Um, if you recut it under running water, uh, that is that's good. Um, what has happened is some of these machines were, cre- were created that recut thousands of stems underwater, and that water ended up getting to be such yucky mm. that it ended up being worse than before. Um, the general consumer, no. I think... Good, quick, clean cut. They can put them back in the water. Um, if they're going to be spending some time arranging them or they're going to cut a few and then go out and get a few more, then I would cut them underwater. Um, but if it's just pull the bunch out of the vase, clip the ends off, put them back in a clean vase, they'll be fine without doing it under running water. Okay, now it's, now it's your turn. Anything that you can think of that you have heard in your time doing this that has been a consistent wrong that you would like to clarify? This is something that you always hear from people and they're like, well, Dr. Dole, isn't it true that? Is is there any one or two things that you think of or just like huge myths of like the cut flower post-harvest game? I think there's a lot of folks there that don't think flower foods, um, that don't use flower foods and don't think they work. And I just... All I can do is show them the volumes of data and the numbers of species that have benefited from that. Um, yes, there's some that don't, but they're the minority. So I would say that's the main thing. And what is a flower food? You know, we talked about the three general categories. Um, it could be just but use something. Do you think it's a little bit of the people almost, it's one of these things that I'm going to be talking with some future guests about. I'm not going to pull you into the debate today, John, but... It's a chemical, right? That it's got an evil, it's a chemical. Seems to be when I hear pushback from people on using it sometimes, that almost feels like where it's coming from. Yeah, um, I think that's probably where it's coming from. I'm afraid, I'm a scientist, everything is a chemical. You know, just organic sugar is a chemical. Um, we get tied up in 
uh, we put value on words that often don't really mean much. Um, there are poisonous chemicals, there are non-poisonous chemicals, um, but in this particular case, this is a good thing. Um, this is a, um, yes, it's a chemical, but when you eat a big plate of food, you're eating a big plate of useful, nutritious chemicals. So let's get past the, 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 the word there. There are different kinds of chemicals, and yes, we can talk about those. But in this case, it's a good chemical. Well, you're going to have to tune in to when I have Dr. Wyndham on because one of the things that I'm going to – this is a preview. Anyone who stuck with us through the entire podcast is getting this preview for the upcoming podcast, John, that I have in the last two days seen two alleged experts on uh, roses say to people that you can just simply prune off rose rosette disease. And uh, in fact, Ooh. one of them actually said you can prune off rose rosette disease and then that rose expert was going to take rooted cuttings from the plant that was infected with rose rosette disease. Um, so we've got that out there. We're still fighting the good fight, John. But we, uh, the chemical thing, a lot of these words, like you said, they've been hijacked a little bit um, by a group of people that may not always be the most reliable of sources. Yes, indeed. Well, folks, what did we learn this week? We learned, number one, we need to get gladiolas going again, John. I think that's one of the things that we should definitely do. There we go. Because I, to see that. I see people doing well, There's still a lot out there, but yeah, it's his own work. Cross ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life it's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way